Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 73. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Our special guest today is Michael Bricker of People for Urban Progress. So, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Just as a bit of background, you are the founder and executive director of People for Urban Progress based in Indianapolis, and our very own Donna Sink is on the board of PUP. I wanted to first just ask you, what was the origin story to PUP, and what first inspired you to start this organization? Yeah, sure. So we started in 2008, really as two citizens just interested in design and spaces and reuse in our city. And the organization really started with a question. And and at the time, the RCA Dome, which is where the Indianapolis Colts play or used to play, was coming down and was being replaced by the new Lucas Oil Stadium. And, And that building, the roof of that building had this kind of incredible white material that I'm sure you guys are familiar with that a lot of stadiums and airports kind of have this like white roof membrane where the roofs are held up by air pressure or tension. And so we knew this building was coming down and it had this, you know, historic significance to the city of Indianapolis. A lot of people really credit that building with making downtown, you know, what it is today. And so we just asked this question of, you know, what what is that material and is there a, a plan for it, you know? And that that question really just snowballed into, in many ways, the organization, but it, it took us a while to, to, to kind of bring that all together. But, but really, we did a deep dive on this material and learned what it was and learned that it had some pretty amazing properties and had some real utility. And so we started working with the demolition company to talk about saving it and, and, and how would we be able to d- divert that resource uh, from a local landfill. And uh, thankfully, they were interested in, in helping us out. And so we partnered with a couple of different organizations, were able to transport the material, store the material. Uh, the demolition company actually ended up taking it down a different way so that we could reuse it. And from there, we started thinking a lot about, you know, how do we match this resource with a community need, you know? And we we had a lot of it, you know? It was, it's about 13 acres of Teflon-coated fiberglass, an outer layer and an inner layer that each have uh, slightly different properties. And we felt like that there was real potential for that material to make it back out into the community. And so the need that we we explored were kind of structures and shade structures and shelters and pavilions that could be scattered throughout kind of public spaces and parks in the city of Indianapolis. So just to clarify a little bit more, um, I wanted to see whether or not this project kind of was the origin. Absolutely. So this project came about before there was any like higher minded objective to start an organization, but it was like, oh, this is clearly something we want to do. So how can we provide some type of structural backing to make sure we can do these projects in the future? So would you say it's kind of a fair, a fair way to categorize or to characterize PUP's work as something, as an organization that is focused on kind of repurposing materials from buildings or other urban infrastructure that would otherwise be put to demolition or just to landfill and then using those in ideally some kind of community-oriented function. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Absolutely. And the, you know, very much the this project, uh, the of salvaging the RCA Dome, you know, came before the organization, you know, and, and as we looked for support to simply save the material at the time, I was really surprised that there wasn't an organization that was willing to kind of take on this challenge. You know, we met with the city, we met with kind of different salvage based organizations in, in, in the city at the time, and nobody really wanted to take this on, you know, and so we we decided to become the organization that we were looking for, very much based on this this resource. And what we've learned over the years is that 
you know, because we're dealing with such a volume of, of materials that there's opportunity for us to commodify that material and use it as a revenue generator so that we're, we're very much a social enterprise in that regard now where we're, we're hacking these materials, we're turning them into some sort of product. And then that product is funding the good that we see uh, or that we want to see in, in the community. So it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a, a manual kind of Kickstarter in a way. And, and I often wonder like how we would be positioned a little differently if we had started after Kickstarter existed, but we, we started uh, before. And Donna. Yes. Much valued board member of PUP. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got involved? So one thing we haven't said about Michael so far is that Michael does have a Master of Architecture from UT Austin, correct? Yep. So Michael and I met while doing critiques at uh, Ball State University in the architecture department. And um, we, you know, we just got to talking and uh, he invited me to be on the board shortly after it was formed, in part because we, Pup and Michael have put together a board of people who, who will work. We're not just a board in name, we are a working board. And so Michael needed some people who had expertise in the built world and how to get things built in the in the world and in the city of Indianapolis. So he invited a couple of architects. And then we also have people on the board who specialize in marketing or in merchandising because we do sell the product or in um, recyclable materials. You know, so, so we have various specialties on the board, all of us people who are very committed to the city of Indianapolis as a, as a place and uh, a place with a history that we want to tell the story of. So yeah, the, the way that I tend to work on the board is mostly as um, an advisor as we are doing built projects. I have actually for the professional architects out there in the in the world, I have stamped drawings for PUP for some of the projects that we have done. So I've, I'm acting legally in that capacity as well. And then we just are, you know, we're like I said, we're a group of people that are super excited about the city of Indianapolis. And that's what the nonprofit, not just the board, but the entire nonprofit and all of our volunteers and all of the connections we have have really spawned into this energy, this great energy around the city and telling the story of the city. What about the rest of the team working with PUP? Are you guys a mostly architects? Um, what are the other kind of positions that people hold in the organization? Yeah, so we're a really small team. There's uh, three people on staff, and then we have a, about five contractors that do a range of things, either from cutting and processing the material to sewing and building the products. And then in some some regards, we kind of expand and contract based on the products or the projects that are that are in the studio. So if we have, you know, a, a project out in the community, then, you know, we'll engage, you know, a local architect or designer to kind of help us think through that that project. Jessica, who uh, is my twin sister, uh, but also runs uh, the entire kind of product design and product department of People for Urban Progress. So she's overseeing like the kind of properties of these materials, these fabrics, and then working with our team of uh, designers to come up with really amazing products. You know, so she's really overseeing the creation of the of these units that are that I think are really beautiful and, and hearty and, and are made of pieces of our city. I also want to point out that and my, this is one of the reasons that I was attracted to joining the board at PUP and doing, doing work there. Um, from the very beginning, PUP has paid our designers. So we have designers come to do, to do product for us to sell anything that we do. We've always said we are going to pay the people who come up with ideas for us. So we are trying to embed that attitude towards good design within the city. And that is a long, hard fight <laughs> with a lot of bureaucratic walls. But, I, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting that story out. And one of the longest running projects that you guys have is this repurposing of stadium seats from Bush Stadium to reuse as uh, bus stops. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? 
Yeah, so we, uh, I think in 2011, we started pulling out these seats from the old Bush Stadium here in Indianapolis, not the one that's in uh, St. Louis, but there, there's a an old kind of AAA uh, stadium that was here that was built in the 20s. And then they redid the stadium, I think, in the 70s with these bright orange and yellow plastic and aluminum seats. And they turned that building amazingly into apartments and, and condos a couple of years ago. And before they did that work, we were able to get in there and remove a lot of these seats. And again, you know, this this notion of matching a, a resource that you have a lot of with a community need, you know, that that kind of always rises to the surface as a theme of, of how we want to work as an organization. And so the need there, which really came from one of our interns at the time, uh, was about matching uh, transit with these seats. And so we entered into this really amazing partnership with Indigo, which is our uh, public transit uh, group here in Indianapolis, and and started refurbishing the seats, you know, giving them new coat of paint, you know, freshening up all the connections and, and building a base. And then those started populating bus stops all over the city. Uh, and the need there was really significant. So at the time, Indigo had about 4,000 bus stops. It's a pretty pretty large system. Uh, and only about 300 of those had an amenity of any kind. And then only 42 had a bench, you know, so like the, the, the discrepancy there and the need there is, is huge, you know, and so we were like, well, let's use a, res- a resource that the city already has, which is these seats. And so we started installing them throughout the city. And, and, and some of those we paid for ourselves. You know, we sold a lot of the seats to the public to help raise some money to do that. Indigo purchased some of the seats. And then we went out into the community and got some partnerships uh, uh, and support from different organizations and individuals that, that, are, that are sponsoring some of the seats. And so I think we're up to 45 new pup stops and we're, we're continuing to expand the program. So in the span of about, you know, two to three years, we've essentially doubled the number of seats at bus stops in the city using a resource it already had. Was Indigo kind of a bit hesitant to take you up on this offer? Can you tell us a little bit about like what kind of roadblocks might have come in to uh, them accepting a project like this? Yeah, I mean, you know, amazingly, I think we we connected with them at, at the right time. They were really supportive of the project and and really, you know, we did a test. So we refurbished a set of four and that, and we actually took that to the people that were taking over Bush Stadium and used that as a basically a prototype to prove to them that this could work. Because at the time they were like, "These seats are garbage. Like, who cares? Like, we're just going to throw them out. They have no utility." And I was like, "No, they really, they really do. Just you know, give us a second. And so we did this prototype. That worked well. They said, "Okay, we got the seats out of there." Partnering with a couple of other organizations here in the city, and then and then we installed one at one bus stop in downtown. And I think it was there about nine months to a year before we installed any others, just to kind of see how it would hold up and make sure that you know everyone was kind of cool with the process and the results. And it ended up working really well, and it allowed us to to continue to to expand. And so, you know, Indigo has been great about advising where the stops can go. They help us handle the installation. You know, they recommend the spots based on number of, of riders need, you know, making sure there's enough infrastructure there. So they really do, uh, you can see on our website, but they really do blanket the entire city. You know, we didn't, we wanted to make sure that these weren't, you know, specific to a certain part of the city, but that everybody could, could, could benefit from these. And uh, it's pretty cool. They're, they're in, you know, all, all four corners of the city for sure. Michael, I want to step back a minute again, and because this has been a theme I've talked about a lot in some of my uh, work with the AIA and with, with architecture schools. You are executive director of PUP. You also do production design for films. 
and your degree is in architecture. I want to hear a little about how what your feelings are about architecture as an education, as a degree, the the you know the drive to either get or not get your license. <laughs> Can we talk a little about that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like one of the main questions I get, particularly in running pup, is like, "Oh, are you are you like bummed to not be using your architecture degree?" And I'm just like, "Am I not?" You know, I mean, <laughs> like it, it just, I just, I don't, I, I, in many ways, I don't understand the question. You know, I, I, I think somewhat unknowingly, I went to graduate school not to design buildings, but to become a, you know, more powerful designer, you know, and, and I went for the skill set rather than the result being a building, you know, so I've, I've, it doesn't mean I'm not interested in, in architecture from a building standpoint, but I'm much more interested in this in the skill set and particularly the scale. You know, studying architecture allows you to think about assemblies and design at all scales, you know. So I, I I'm very comfortable designing something like a wallet all the way up to, you know, a park pavilion, up to a building, up to, you know, even looking at the city from a very zoomed out perspective, you know, and I think very much that that's something that comes from studying architecture. You also shared with me that the in your graduate program, you never or almost never did a project as a solo designer. You always were teamed with uh, with design partners in studio. Yeah, I mean, not all, all the time. It was a pretty good mix. You know, the most significant one being at the end there, uh, everyone goes through, it's not really a thesis studio, but it's it, at UT, it's called TechCom and, and it's a partner-based design project. And you're, des- you know, we designed a, a, a synagogue and it's a, it's a huge project. I mean, it's a nine credit hour studio, I think, if I remember. And like the whole point is that you're spending almost all of your time that semester going through, you know, design development, construction documents, doing the whole thing. And so it was a really, really valuable experience in, in, in seeing that full scope and, and having to navigate designing with a partner and designing with a real site in the city and, you know, understanding a little bit what it's like to work with a client and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really great. So Michael, your pup is eight years into it already. And the projects that you're developing seem are just pretty local projects, aren't they? They're, yeah. Has there been pressure for you to consider outside of Indianapolis or are you kind of comfort, you're in a comfort level <laughs> with uh, dealing with projects on that level? Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all about kind of the resources that we have available here. You know, I, I very much would love for Pup to expand uh, into other markets. We were featured in, in Dwell Magazine in January, and that that yielded a whole bunch of interesting connections uh, nationally and internationally for us. One, one of the main ones uh, being uh, in Atlanta. Uh, we've had some really solid connections there about Atlanta being interested in us coming down there. And so we're exploring those options. I mean, I think the the problems that we're tackling, the design problems that we're tackling in this city as it relates to kind of interesting architectural and urban waste, every city has these problems, you know, and very, very few, I think, are addressing them with the kind of innovation that that we are. So I think we have a lot to do in terms of scaling our projects locally, but also, you know, replicating or cur- kind of curating our, our model for 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 other markets. You know, I've always thought about the organization in some ways as the inverse of um, uh, architecture for humanity, you know, which was about taking architectural knowledge and up- applying it elsewhere. And I'm interested in applying it here, you know, and and I think there are, I'm sure, designers and makers and, and innovators in Atlanta that know Atlanta better than I know Atlanta, you know, but can we, can we kind of come together to, to talk about 
materials and resources and, and the needs of Atlanta and then help them develop projects that are specific to that city, you know? So yeah, I would love, I would love to, to see that for sure. So you brought up an interesting uh, segue for me um, because my next question was going to be, you know, given the recent, well, the, the dissolving of uh, Architecture for Humanity uh, six years ago and the recent revelations that there's a, um, outstanding funds that were potentially misused, are you cognizant of being as a, as a 501c3 of that kind of pressure when you start, you're in Dewall Magazine, obviously you're going to get more notoriety and, and you'll start to grow. Does that I mean, maybe it's too early for you to feel that kind of pressure or that concern, but are you able to bring people on to help you grow responsibly so that you don't run into those same issues? Yeah, we're we're starting to be more mindful of those things. You know, one of the conversations I've been having here in the city of Indianapolis is, and I do think this is also kind of a, a nationwide issue, is, is how do cities properly engage and help grow businesses that are starting there? Like there's this, there's this now like notion of the post startup, you know, and, and PUP is very much a post startup. And in order for us to kind of become the institution that we want to be in, in, in the city of Indianapolis, but also export that to other markets in, in the United States is, you know, we need some, some meaningful help as it relates to finances and, and, and growth and, and risk and all of those things. And so uh, that's a big conversation that we've been having locally. And the board, I think, understands that. And we're starting to have more mindful conversations like with the chamber and kind of other key stakeholders here in Indianapolis to, to help us grow and help us become the kind of solid institution in Indianapolis that, that, that we want to become. The one thing I've always wondered about nonprofits and given the work that you do and, and the organizations that you typically work with, the transit authority and stuff like that, does it ever frustrate you as a member of the community that we have legislatures and governors and, and, and local governing bodies that don't dedicate the, the amount of resources necessary to provide the structures that you have to have a nonprofit kind of do the work that should be the responsibility of government? Do you ever find that frustrating? You're kind of backfilling in a way. You're kind of backstopping where the government really needs to be providing these things. This is where our tax dollars are supposed to be being used for, and and yet you're you're filling this need. Yeah, I mean, I think in some regards, like that's why you're given nonprofit status, right? Because the government is kind of conceding and saying, like, we don't have the bandwidth to do it, so we're going to get, you know, we're going to let you not pay taxes on certain things, and and that will that. It, then it's up to you to kind of help us out. So in some regards, I take that as like a kind of meaningful responsibility. But I do think that that you're onto something in terms of like access to resources and access to funds. You know, I think that that is at least for us is something that we haven't quite cracked. <laughs> you know, uh, because you're 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 out there having to to raise raise money philanthropically, but you're not really getting any money from the government typically, or at least we're not. So there's definitely some some juggling there. I think where we're unique and where again like we're more like a social enterprise is that we're like our do we don't have a donor database, which some funders like totally panic over. You know, our donors are customers, you know, and people that are fans of our product, you know, and so that has replaced the need for us to have like, you know, fundraising galas and silent auctions. I mean, we just, I don't spend any time doing any of those things. You know, instead, we're, we're building a brand that is about kind of pride in your city, you know, using resources pulled from the city itself. 
you know, and we found over the years that that's created like some really interesting like brand loyalty and and pride and like just people really love the work that we're doing, you know, and they feel like they're contributing to the future of our city by purchasing something something from us and then seeing that same material maybe somewhere installed somewhere out in the city. And I think that as a model, as we're even though we're still trying to figure out exactly how it works like that as a model has a lot of, I think, power to it. Yeah, Michael, that's something that I specifically wanted to ask you about. And Donna, as well, if you have any insight into this, is what kind of decisions went into forming this model of the organization where you do both these public transit-oriented projects, where you're coordinating with the transit agency to get the seating installed, and there's no explicit, you know, private customer there, so to speak. But at the same time, then in later projects, you develop this line of accessories and uh, clothing that you can use both as an example of the kind of products that you can create from these repurposed materials and also as kind of like, you know, a walking advertisement for the organization that you can disseminate around nationally, internationally and be kind of a beacon for the organization that people can be like, huh, that bag? Like, oh, like, oh, I really like that bag. And someone's like, oh, well, it was made out of <laughs> the stadium roofing by right. this organization. So like the, the narrative really clearly unravels. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that came to be? Like, what, how did you decide to create those types of products as part of the organization's mission? Yeah. So, you know, fundamentally, it came from what we could afford to do at the time. You know, Pub exists because we got what we wanted, right? Like we we got 13 acres of Teflon-coated fiberglass, which is ridiculous, <laughs> you know? And, and so it's like, all right, well, we want to see that material out in the city and we have zero resources to to do that and architecture is expensive you know even if it's a simple pavilion it still costs money you need foundations and designers and intelligence and materials and so you know we're like well we can't afford that but we can afford a sewing machine and we can afford to make some things and so we just started really with the resource and learning learning the material and starting very basic and we built these products specifically to help us raise funds to do the larger work that that we wanted. Um, so early on, when we started, we you know we we thought the product would only be kind of like a one off souvenir, and we uh, you know we sold a thousand units, and that raised about seventy thousand dollars. You know, half of that went to pay overhead, pay the designers. You know, like Donna said, anyone that does design work for us gets paid. That's really important to us. And then the other half went into a fund for us to to spend on developing a couple of shade structures around the city. And yeah, so so it, it, it very much grew out of necessity and and what we could what we could afford to do. And along the way, I think we then stumbled upon this like interesting model to to self kickstart, you know, and and so when we when we went ahead and pulled the seats out of Bush Stadium, we were able to fund part of that project ourselves from the sale of bags, you know, so there's this notion of kind of constantly rolling forward, paying it forward in a way to dictate and develop the projects that we want to develop rather than relying specifically or exclusively on on grant money. I would add that our our tagline is goods for good, that we're making goods to sell so that we can then do good within the city. And I would also point out that our, our you know, I think uh, the, the notion of a bag made from a recycled fabric is very popular and that's a good thing, but our bags are really, really well designed also. I mean, they're really chic. 
<laughs> and we have started working with organizations such as the Indianapolis Motor Speedway so that we can specify to them which kind of fabric they could use for things like their banners. And then that is material that we know we can reuse. And then they can sell that material in their gift shop. So it's really this incredibly well-designed graphically and in terms of fabrication bags that then tell the story of what people are passionate about, about the city. I would also just say I have, in my family of three, we own now 11 pup bags. And everywhere I go with a pup bag, I get compliments and comments and questions. And it's always an opportunity to launch into the the brand story. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we are unique in that we are in many ways, a link between like sports fans and sustainability and design, you know, which are kind of exactly. two two bubbles that don't often intersect. But why shouldn't they, you know? And so, you know, Indianapolis is so known for its sports heritage that that we're starting to connect more with those institutions, like Donna said, like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So we did a deal with them for the 100th running of the race where we got some of those banners after the race, before and after the race, and are building pup product that is part RCA Dome, part, you know, Indianapolis Motor Speedway banners. Um, and we're actually now starting to to try to get some of the seat belts from the race cars to to include uh, in the product as well. So, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, then every every product is a little unique and every product has, has a story to it. But then along the way, we're subversively changing things like purchasing of fabric, you know, and making sure that we dictate that street, that resource stream, you know, so we're advising them on what types of vinyls and what types of materials that we can best reuse so that we know what we're getting from the beginning. You know, they gift us that material, we build it into a product, we sell it back to them, and then they sell it to to their customers. And and basically, everyone is winning and making a little bit of money off a, of a resource and a material that previously would have just gone in the garbage. So would you say that that's kind of one of the later goals or future goals of PUP to establish these kind of forefront relationships with organizations to advise them in that fashion of these are the best materials you can use so that we can then take over afterwards? Is that kind of a position that you'd like PUP to have in the future? Absolutely. You know, um, we're getting so good at this that we're starting to advise and consult on a couple of projects around in the city and 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 we're being pulled into these conversations earlier and earlier, you know, which is which is what we want. You know, it allows us to do a better job at at what we do so that, you know, that, you know, again, we're at the table when these decisions are being made instead of you know, basically catching everything at the end. You know, the, the best example of that was when, you know, when the Super Bowl was here in Indianapolis a couple of years ago, you know, we weren't part of any of the planning, any of the effort for that event. And then two weeks before the game, you know, someone from the NFL reaches out and they said, we heard you take material. Would you like some of the banners from the event? And we were like, I was like, uh, sure. Like how, how much are we talking? And they said, you know, five pallet boxes. And then two days after the event, 49 showed up at our warehouse, you know, and it's, we're estimating, you know, it was around five miles of fabric. You know, this is an incredible amount of material that, you know, four years later, we're, we're still going through. So we're trying to be much better about uh, thinking about that whole process of reuse from the, from the very beginning. We're, we're learning our lesson. So, Michael, I want to uh, bring it back maybe a little more to a, a conversation as well instead of an interview. It's been wonderful talking and hearing about this. Of course, I know the whole story. But, you know, we're all architects. All of our listeners are architects. Tell us about some of the places you've been to. I know you've been to a CEOs for Cities event, and I know you went out to um, Freitag to visit their facility and learn from them. Tell us about what you're seeing along these 
same avenues that PUP is doing in other cities or in other places. What are some things in the architecture and design world right now that you're seeing that you either feel good about or you feel like, boy, we really should fix that? (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a big question. You mean from like a reuse standpoint? Any of it, anything related to the design in the, the built world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, this like, you know, maker movement that, that has emerged, which I think people all have different definitions of what that means, you know, I think is, is not going to go away. And this, this notion of having something, you know, small batch manufactured or, or, or you know, made locally is not, is not a one-off thing to like post on Etsy. You know, people are getting really, really good at this all right. over the country. And as they, like ourselves, as they spend more time doing it, then we're becoming more integrated into the decision-making of the city itself, you know? And I think as a result, we're starting to see more interesting installations all over the city or all over, you know, the United States. I also think that, and I think this is a good thing, but we're, we're starting to see like kind of a merging of public art and urban design, which, you know, is kind of a whole conversation, but like these, these art installations are also now like seats and shelter and shade. And, and that line is getting a lot blurrier, which I'm a fan of, you know, I think this notion of a, of an art object slamming into a neighborhood in need and kind of ignoring the real problems and needs of that community is, can, can be almost insulting. You know, I'm more interested in going into that community and maybe being a little bit more subversive about it, but, you know, installing really beautiful bus stops, for example, or a really great pavilion in, in, in the middle of a park that needs some love. Like that's acknowledge that's using design as a tool to help the community see the value of design, you know, rather than seeing translating it as an art object that just arrives. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think that's true. I do think that's happening more and more around the country. Um, you know, I, I think Indianapolis is doing great things right now, but I really don't think we're the only city doing, I mean, we're the only city doing what PUP is doing because so far there are no other PUPs. But this notion and interest in making things and, and making them well, I do think that that's, that's happening more and more. I agree. Michael, I want to ask you if you have a certain project or something that you see in Indianapolis that you're kind of like, you know, salivating over rent, like running your hands over like, oh, man, I can't wait until we can repurpose something from there, either because it you just already know there would be a great use for it. And it's a really great opportunity for Pup to grow. But also that there seems to me like to me to be this inherent possibility within Pup to take materials from buildings or sites that have already an inherent cultural value outside from just the function that they serve. Say if Super Bowl XLVI was a incredibly historic event and therefore whatever we got from there, if you could turn that into a bag, you could have an even higher price of the bag that you sell that Mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So something like that. Is there a project out in the world that you have your eyes on? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one here that I can't talk about that's wood based, which we haven't we haven't used wood yet. So that one is kind of currently in development that I would love to share, but I can't yet. Ooh, okay, we'll just have to go through all the wood projects in Indianapolis. The one thing I can say about that's really cool is for the first time we've been engaged to study the reuse of that material in advance, and that we're being you know you know compensated to do that. And I think that that's you know going to emerge as as a model for pup, but also something that I think all cities you should think about doing. Like if you know a building or you know a resource is going to be available, it's worth spending a little bit of money to figure out how it could be reused. You know, just because it's changing use or it's not useful to one group doesn't mean it doesn't have value. 
And I think that's, you know, definitely a byproduct of our kind of, you know, Walmart nation right now. But I think that, you know, we have to do better, you know, and and we have to really look at these resources, particularly when we're we're thinking of the amount, like, you know, the number, think of the numbers that I'm using, we're a staff of three people, and we're salvaging 13 acres of Teflon coated fiberglass and 9000 seats from Bush Stadium and five miles of fabric from the Super Bowl, like, Every city has these volumes of material. And frankly, we just have to be better at thinking about their reuse in advance. And also just realizing, I think what we've revealed is there can be money there, you know, that there can be money to be made and that money can can be put back into, into the community itself. So, Michael, one uh, last question for you. Put you on the spot here a little bit. What are you listening to and what are you reading these days? <laughs> What am I listening to? What am I reading? I'm actually reading this book. I can't remember the name of it, but it's about like architecture and burglary. Oh yeah. The Jeff Mana book? I think so. A Burglar's Guide to the City? Yeah, that. So I'm reading that, which I don't know if you guys have talked about already, but I, I really love it because it's it's taking, the, you know, again, the notion of architecture and looking at it through this like completely different lens of like how to ex- explore and discover a space and how buildings do and do not kind of yield them, you know, reveal themselves to, to, to be easy or not easy to break into, I guess. So that's what I'm, I'm reading or yeah, reading now. And then, you know, as Donna mentioned, I'm, you know, also work in the film industry as a production designer. So I'm just, you know, watching tons of shows constantly and looking at the spaces and design of those all the time. So. Ooh, can you recommend some television shows that might have particularly good production design? Well, I just finished uh, House of Cards which is always excellent. So that one definitely is, is, is a standout for sure. So we'll put a link in the show notes to um, what's it? natural selection. Is that the one you did the, the movie? Yeah. Yeah. That movie is worth just for the like opening sequence. The first time you see the star, but the whole movie all throughout is so beautifully envisioned. It's thank you. Yeah. And it's a great film. Yeah. That one's a good one. And then there's uh, another one called computer chess. That's definitely worth checking out. So yeah, I'll say that uh, uh, the the Pup Studio headquarters is a sort of a it's it sort of goes through cycles between being a retail space and a manufacturing space and a meeting space and a community space and it and then cycles back again into being a retail space or whatever. And I think every time I go in there, they've got some funky music on. Usually, I I don't know if you guys just put on Pandora or whatever, but yeah, it's a good it's a good spot. It's a good kind of flexible working studio. I love that when people come and visit, they can actually see people making the product and they can. They can really see the entire trajectory in one spot. The, the the fabric sitting on the shelves, the cut pieces ready for production, someone sewing the products and building them, and then you know our photo set up to see them photographed to go on our e-commerce. So you know, seeing that kind of full production line, I think people really find fascinating. You know, and so we're always looking for ways to to better showcase that that process. It's a great studio space. Yeah. And, and, you know, being out of school as long as I have been, it just feels good to go into that space. It, <laughs> yeah. Feels like a studio. It's good. Definitely. Yeah. And if we got, I think I, today I put on a thing on our website. So if I do a, a little bit of a plug, if any of your listeners, uh, I think enter Arconnect on our site, they get a, a discount on our, on our product. So, um, Yay. yeah. So <laughs> if that, if that makes the cut, you know, we would, we would love to, to put that out there. Excellent. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, I hope we have a chance to visit the storefront. Um, if, any of the sessions crew besides Donna, of course, are in, in, in Indianapolis. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.
Yeah, thanks to everyone out there listening. And thanks again to Michael for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with the hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks again and talk to everybody next week.